Chapter 24 Stella stood in the open staff room door, one hand on her heaving breast, trying to catch her breath. How terrible to bear a life-and-death message and yet be unable to speak. The nodder might be dying, and Stella stood breathless. Meanwhile, Cheryl, all unknowing, too alone at the staff room sink, studying a piece of paper that she held in her hand. As she turned towards Stella, her face changed its expression from inquiring to concerned. Still holding the paper, she moved towards Stella. Her breast heaving, Stella silently told herself that a dog with a good yap on it would do a better job than she was doing in, alter in alerting Cheryl to the Nodder's collapse. She had left the Nodder in extremis, and all she could do was wave a trembling hand toward the corridor. She would have barked if she could. Cheryl reached Stella and put the hand, not holding the sheet of paper, on Stella's shoulder. Cheryl must be a born caregiver, because with her gesture, Stella retrieved the power of speech. The nodder. What's that, Mrs. Ryman? Cheryl asked. It's all right. Take it slowly. Take your time. There might not be time. Stella shook her head, trying to remember the Nodder's real name. She cursed herself for having so thoughtlessly nicknamed the woman. She gasped. One of the Greek chorus! Another nickname. Her eyes squeezed shut. That friend of Iolanth and Lucille, the one who doesn't talk. She's seriously ill. Dining room. Gotcha. Cheryl's kind eyes sharpened. She turned and called out for Reliza. The door to what appeared to be the staff washroom opened, and the younger care, care worker emerged, combing her shiny black hair. She stared from Cheryl to Stella and slipped her comb into the pocket of that worn yellow smock. Has something happened? It's Mrs. Ramsden. I'll go straight there, and you go and fetch the doctor. Cheryl squeezed Stella's shoulder. All right, Reliza's face brightened, and she made for the door. Cheryl glanced at a piece of paper in her hand. She tossed it into the nearby rubbish bin. Cheryl called after Reliza. I'll meet you both there. Then, so suddenly it seemed almost like witchcraft, Cheryl and Reliza were gone, leaving Stella swaying in the wake of their passing. A moment later, Reliza and the doctor passed the staff room door, their footsteps quick and quiet as they ran. Left alone in the staff room doorway, Stella didn't have any idea what to do next, and in fact, couldn't comprehend the concept of nextness. She felt as if the corridor was spinning along its whole length, slowly but inexorably, so that she had to hold on to the staff room door frame with both hands to keep upright. Across the corridor, the open door to the storage room appeared to sit slightly on the diagonal, shifted towards her and then away. If she let go her grip on the door frame, 
Stella doubted whether this dizziness would allow her to walk. She had a sudden wish to sit down on the floor and to slide across the shifting corridor tiles into the storage room, where, under the plastic-draped art table, she had once found solitude and privacy and had sipped a cup of tea. But she couldn't creep away, not in good conscience, nor could she continue to stand here in the staff room doorway because the nodder was in trouble, perhaps her final trouble, and Stella had to do something. But what could she, breathless and unsteady, possibly do to help? Perhaps nothing, probably nothing, but that didn't matter. The thing was not to stand there like a useless old person, but to see what needed doing, even if it was only to hold the daughter's hand while the poor woman died. Enough inaction, Stella. Soldier on. Yet the corridor continued to grind in a slow circle, like the second hand on a stupendously large clock face. She hung on tightly to the doorframe. She told herself the nodder was not going to die, not with all the resources at Fairmount Manor, not with Dr. Terry himself on the case, and all of them had been alerted to the trouble by Stella herself. Don't sell yourself short, she told herself aloud. Just get your behind back to the dining room. At last, she let go of the doorway. The hall was still swinging round, but more slowly now. Corridor one way, storage room, corridor the other. Stella in the staff room doorway. Corridor one way, storage room. If she balanced herself with a hand against the wall, like a lousy ice skater, she could make her way back down to the dining room. But which way to go? She knew perfectly well what her position in the staff room was at the far end of her own corridor, Daffodil Corridor, with its yellow sponge-like walls. But just now she found herself without any sense of direction at all. The problem was not just the strange rotating movement of the corridor. Corridor right, storage room, corridor left. The light around her dimmed as if her eyes or the overhead fluorescence, had gone to half power. But she'd lived here for several months now, and she ought to be able to find her way through these corridors blindfolded, or, even like Thelma, blind. Stella looked left and right down the corridor. Make your choice, adventurous stranger. The words came to her straight out of the pages of the Narnia series, and she remembered how it felt to have all those children's eyes glued upon her while she read aloud to them. Fulfilling. That was how it felt. Those children were grown now, and she was old. But not too old to choose. Corridor right or left? She couldn't remember which was which. All right, then, if not right or left, then this way or that. That. I'll find the nodder down there. 
Stella stumbled forward in what was her near darkness on a slowly turning surface. She bumped her knee against the corridor wall, and then her elbow. It was enough to tempt a person to break down and cry, to wait for help, to pause, to rest. Soldier on. At last, she found herself at a dead end, pressed up against a door. The dining room door? Yes. Such persistence in the face of difficulty must bring success, or every book she had read aloud to those wide-eyed schoolchildren had lied. She pushed at the door. It pushed back. It would not do. She found the handle, a sort of lever, and pressed her full weight on it. In the long arc of its opening, Stella saw what she had not seen upstairs in the bed where she had arranged herself to meet death. Instead, as she hove open the door, she experienced a very long moment of her own personal history. To be precise, she saw her life pass before her eyes. First, Stella's happy childhood, roaming freely through the streets and running home for a hot meal. Then, her bookish, dedicated adolescence. On to her miserable marriage and the joy of Junie's birth. Then Junie as a child in her pink rubber raincoat and bright red boots, dripping in the doorway, happy to be home. Stella's first day on the job as school librarian. The first time she kissed her young lodger. Her parting with Junie. The envelope with green writing on it sliding through her mail slot onto the foyer carpet. Stella got the door open wide enough to pass through it. Once on the other side, she blinked in the white light and covered her ears against the roar of some kind of engine and a blast of air from behind. She had thought she would emerge into the dining room, but she was outside. She blinked and held out both arms for balance. In front of her lay a swath of grass and a sidewalk. On the other side of the road, cars tore by in a way that not long ago would have been so familiar that she hadn't even noticed their speed or their stink. Just across the road, a row of houses spread out where regular people lived in houses like her old house. Beyond that, rooftops rose and fell in rows of V's like the wings of migrating birds. Above her shone the great blue limitless heavens. Stella raised her arms. She stood with her arms outstretched and thought, so this is what it's like. You were in Fairmont Manor and then you saw your life pass before your eyes. At last, you stepped out a doorway and you were com somewhere completely different. This was what it must be like to die. Beneath her feet, the world turned. It would not be so bad, dying, not so terrible at all. Stella waited, holding her arms slightly away from her torso for balance, in case she was about to drift upwards into the blue. 
in case it happened to her, after all, and not to the nodder. She realized she could no longer smell the cars. The air tasted heavy, sweet as water. And in that moment of light-filled blue and green clarity, she knew exactly what it was that had caused the nodder such distress that she had hardly been able to breathe. The cause of it all was that piece of paper that had been sitting on the table in front of the nodder ripped into pieces. Stella would bet money that before it had been torn up, that piece of paper had been a letter, and that the nodder had found the letter in an envelope, with the letters of the nodder's real name cut out of magazines and glued onto the front. Stella longed to stay outside. She would have been happy to sway in her slip-on shoes under this blue sky forever. But at the thought of the nodder's distress, Stella turned and made her way back towards the door. She had nearly reached it when she saw that it was an institutional door, like a school boiler room door, which had no handle on the outside. This meant she would have to go around to the front door and ring for entrance. She shivered to think of the embarrassment of having to explain to a member of staff why she was outside, alone and unsupervised. But it would not hurt to have a go at opening the door before this last resort. She got her fingers around the edge of the door and pulled, putting all her weight into the effort, and the door opened for her. Gratefully, she passed back through into Daffodil Corridor. Chapter 25 Alone in her room, the scent of her brief time outdoors long gone, Stella sat perched on the edge of her bed. She had wandered Fairmount's corridors until she had seen the same landmarks twice, but she had not tracked down the nodder. Even Dr. Terry's little cupboard of an office was unoccupied, and nameless dear care workers she had encountered in the hall had responded to her inquiries after the nodder's health with variations on, I've no idea who you mean, I'm sure she's fine, dear, so kind of you to worry about others, which Stella took to mean, none of you died today, dear, isn't that nice? Stella's feet tapped restlessly against the floor beside her bedside table. On the top of the table lay her copy of Prisoner of Zenda and a neat little stack of marmalade packets. These she swept out of sight into her bedside table drawer. Finding the nodder in extremis hadn't really caused her to forget about putting the envelope inside the red-covered red copy of Prisoner Zenda, although she had done something that felt much like forgetting. It was more accurate, she considered, to say that her mind had taken today's envelope and locked it away in some obscure, underused lobe of her brain with the memory of the older envelope, the one with her name written in green ink. She laid the flat of her hand atop the closed cover of Zenda. Once upon a time, she used to love getting mail. 
This was before junk mail took over the postal service. But due to her particular circumstances, she had now arrived at a time in her life when she did not like to think about envelopes at all. She thought about them now. Placing the envelope on her knee, she fiddled with the flap where she had loosened it earlier this morning. She opened the letter. Inside, she saw a piece of white paper. She slid the paper out and sat for a moment, wondering whether she ought to be in her room at all. Should she not be walking around and asking after the nodder? She unfolded the paper. Glued to the center was a picture. No words were written on it at all. At first, even with her glasses on, she couldn't believe what she was seeing. Somebody had sent her a picture of a knife. Stella was surprised at the calm she felt at the sight of it, although her mouth went suddenly dry. She set the picture down on her lap and smoothed it so that it lay nearly flat. She sat gazing at the message it held. Like the letters on the outside of the envelope, the picture appeared to have been snipped out of a magazine or a catalogue. It was an ordinary knife, the sort you might find in anybody's kitchen, including her own, before she'd sold house and contents to move to Fairmont Manor. It was the sort of knife that had a black handle and a serrated edge, an everyday utensil as common as a spatula or a blender. But when you looked at such a picture, you understood what it meant. The message was as clear as cling wrap. Somebody wanted her dead. That was her first thought. The second was to wish that she could lock the door to her room. But she would not panic. Palms flat on each side of the picture of the serrated knife, she marshaled her thoughts. Because even here at Fairmount Manor, where they decided for her each day what would be nice for dinner, even though they hadn't got that right yet, certain choices still presented themselves. Right now, for example, she could, one, Tell somebody in charge that within the walls of this establishment, which was dedicated to easing and prolonging the lives of elderly men and women, Stella had received a death threat. Or, two, rip up the letter and pretend that the whole nasty incident never happened. She held the paper up and ripped it in half. The tear ran down the middle of the picture of the serrated knife. Having torn the picture, she felt rather as if sitting here on the edge of her bed in her tan, linen-look warm-up suit, she had single-handedly battled crime and won. But no sooner had she settled the matter with herself than a third option occurred to Stella. There was not much precedence for the third option. Stella could think of only one out of more than 50 Agatha Christie mysteries that was set in a care home. But Stella had more experience than Miss Christie and understood, witness Mad Cassandra, 
witness Stella herself not so very long ago. She understood that there were people here in Fairmount Manor plenty crazy enough and vague enough to send out a death threat and then go and watch television for the rest of the day. Stella could find out by herself who sent the letter, although she would do well to remember that pursuit could be dangerous in a place like this, even if no real knives presented themselves. Apparently, somebody in Fairmount Manor had a nasty streak, and Stella had to ask herself the question, just how nasty was it? Her mind called up the picture of Reliza in the corridor, her normally smooth forehead creased as she examined a bit of paper in her hand. Cheryl, tossing an envelope into the rubbish with her paper coffee cup. And, most damning of all, that little pile of torn-up papers in front of the weeping nodder. Ought she to follow the third option and go out investigating the letters for herself? The idea should have been frightening. It's contemplation exhausting. Instead, Stella sat up straight and felt quite ten years younger. Chapter 26 Her mind made up to track down the rest of the mystery letters, Stella did not waste another moment in doubt. She cracked her door and peered out into the hallway just as Ollie went by with a trolley stacked with toilet rolls. He stopped at her door and tipped an invisible cap at her. Ollie with the trolley, he said cheerfully. Inwardly, Stella cursed. It was always such a job to think up a rhyming reply. Stella without a fell was the best she could manage in return, but it served. He chuckled and moved on. As soon as Ollie had disappeared around the corner, Stella returned to the issue at hand. Her job was to steal the mail. Stella darted a glance at Mrs. McAndrew's door. No letter there, drat. But her eyes were never very reliable from one moment to the next, especially when she was tense. So, to be certain, she looked again. And there it was, a line of white, just visible, where the floor met the bottom of Mrs. McAndrew's door. The edge of the envelope lay just barely in view, and what she had to do was find an object suited to the suited to the she felt a thrumming inside her as the proper phrase came to her out of nowhere as if an angel had come down from heaven and doffed its deer stalker cap as if angel had taken a puff on its mershom pipe and murmured you need an object suited to the geometry of the occasion stella ryman Okay, she murmured. I know. I need something long and thin to go under the door. She thought that she would find just the thing in her washroom, in the drawer under the sink, and she nipped inside to look. Not her 
toothbrush, unless as a final resort, but a pink, long-handled comb that lived in the bottom of her vanity bag, the kind hairdressers used uh, to wrap your hair up high, was just right for the task. That pink comb almost jumped out of her case into her hands. Moving quickly, she palmed it and was about to pass back through the door when she realized what it was that she had nearly forgotten to do. She needed a faint, an excuse for bending over, so to speak, in her neighbor's cucumber patch. She looked down at her feet. Her slip-on shoes had no laces, curse them, so they were no help at all. But after a moment's thought, she pushed her sock down so that it bunched uncomfortably down around her heel. Something that it did on its own from time to time anyway. From that point on, the thing was child's play. She merely crossed the corridor, bent to fix her sock, swished under the door with the ratting end of the pink comb, and the envelope shot out from under the door. She slipped it into her pocket. Bob's your uncle, and Fanny's your aunt. Right, Stella thought. Now to break into the staff room.